Good morning, Jacob's Well Church. Uh, it's another beautiful Sunday to worship the Lord together. Uh, this is the last Sunday that I'm going to be pre-recording the services. From here on out, we're going to be live streaming the services at 8.30 a.m. Uh, I'll give you more details about that in a minute. First off, I want to congratulate Jason and Lisa Fulian on the birth of their son, Harrison Lewis, who was born this past Monday. Also, congratulations to the Thomas family, Spencer and Molly Thomas. Spencer is our director of counseling and care on the birth of their son, William Scott Hansen, uh, who was born this past Thursday at 1230 a.m. Uh, we praise God for his provision of more covenant children uh, to grow his church and to carry on the legacy of Christ in our world. As I mentioned, uh, next week we are starting indoor services. Uh, the indoor services will be in our sanctuary at 8.30 a.m. At this time, we are requiring masks for all who come to the worship service. Uh, that's a policy that the elders review every two weeks, and so uh, we meet this Tuesday, so we'll review that policy this Tuesday as well. The service will also be streamed online on our YouTube channel, and you can get this link in a couple different ways. The easiest and probably most reliable way is simply for you to go to YouTube and to type in the search feature, Jacob's Well Church, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Be sure to put in our city because there's a lot of Jacob's Well Churches out there. And you'll get to our channel and there you can find the video. The link will also be posted on our Facebook page as well as on our homepage. It should be a clickable link as well. Um, now, encourage you to log in uh, between 8 and 8.30. There should be a countdown timer going at that time. If you don't get there by 8.30 a.m., whenever you log in, it will pick you up in the middle of the service, wherever the service is. And then after the service is completed, the video will upload to YouTube. And to be honest with you, we're not sure how long that is going to take. It could take an hour. It could take a day. Um, we're not sure how long till that's posted. And so your best bet is simply to make sure that you log on around 8.15 a.m. next Sunday morning if you're going to be watching online. Also wanted to let you know that we still do need you to register for services every Sunday, probably for the next few weeks as we figure out where people are going to be and so that we can plan appropriately for that. And so go onto our website and there are now three options uh, to register. One is for outdoors in the lawn chair, another is for outdoors in car, and another is to be indoors in the sanctuary. And if you are just uh, not wanting to wear a mask, the outdoor service is amazing or or if you're or if you're susceptible to sickness or if you're in a vulnerable state outdoor service is amazing I encourage you to come and to enjoy that with us my wife actually said um, i'd rather go to the outdoor service than the indoor service so I encourage you to come and enjoy that with us and do not forsake the gathering together uh, to worship God as we're called to in the scriptures. Finally, just wanted to let you know, many of you probably already know this, but we're not going to be having our traditional vacation Bible school this year here in a week. Um, instead, it's going. we're going to try to do something for kids a, a day of some sort in August. We're not quite sure what that looks like or have it figured out, but just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Uh, right now, we're going to, uh, is, is our time of fellowship. And so if you need to pause the video uh, to 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 grab some paper and some pen or something like that. I encourage you to do that at this time. Uh, kids, in terms of a drawing assignment, um, I just want you to, to draw, um, 
let me see. I forgot to think of this in advance. Thinking of the passage. I got nothing. Draw something cool and post it on our Facebook page. Something that you hear in the sermon. And uh, and that way others can enjoy it as well. So feel free to pause the video. And, uh, and then we'll start in with the preaching of God's word. Okay, you ready? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your grace to us in Christ. Lord, um, we have heavy things to go through in this passage, and so pray that you'll grant us the grace to receive it with all seriousness, but also with humble hearts, Lord. Keep us from being defenseless, defensive. Help us to be open to being taught that we might glorify you in all that we say and do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you noticed. Uh, I'm guessing you have. But America is angry. I can only remember one other time where I've seen America as angry as this, and it was after 9-11 in 2001 when terrorists attacked the World Trade Center, killing thousands of Americans on U.S. soil. America was sad and America was angry. But the big difference between our anger then and our anger now is that 19 years ago, our anger was against a common foreign enemy, and it united us together in really beautiful and wonderful ways. But today, our anger is against one another. It is internal, and it is driving us apart. Right now in America, we're dealing with a crisis within a crisis. The first crisis happened just a few months ago when the coronavirus came overseas. And we didn't know much about the coronavirus, but what we do know is that in just a span of about two months, it killed over 100,000 people in our country. Some people are angry because from their perception, they believe their rights to assemble and to continue on with their business have been violated. Others are angry, especially the vulnerable and the elderly, because from their perception, those who want everything to reopen quickly seem to be forcing them into unsafe situations and minimizing the value of their life as the elderly. That was the first crisis. But then came the crisis within the crisis a little over a week ago, which was the death of George Floyd and everything that has come after. While George Floyd's record was far from flawless, his crimes were nowhere close to being worthy of having his life being snuffed out by a kneeling police officer who refused to get up, even after being begged and even after George Floyd was unconscious. The video of the incident went viral and it stirred up righteous anger of many Americans, especially African Americans, who resonated with George Floyd's plea, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Many people of every color have courageously joined peaceful protests, even police chiefs have. But to make matters worse, violent protesters have hijacked peaceful protests and caused more damage and death and anger, really distracting us from the initial injustice. Anger, 
America is angry because we feel like our rights have been violated. And we are a country that has literally been built on rights. In the Declaration of Independence, it declares, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created by a creator, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, meaning rights that cannot be alienated from them. That among these are, you know what it is, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Constitution continues with some lines that are less famous. Right after what I just said, it goes on to say that to secure these rights, the rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, governments are instituted among men. And then it says that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish that government. Americans are angry because they feel their inalienable rights and the inalienable rights of their friends have been violated. In this context, God has brought us to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which focuses us on how we should understand our rights and what we should do with our rights as humans, as citizens, but most importantly, as Christians. And so if you would please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Two weeks ago, one of our elders, Ron Young, preached a great sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in which Paul affirms the Christian's right to eat meat that was offered to idols. But then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul says that in certain situations you should forsake this right so as not to destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Because in doing so, Paul says, you are actually sinning against Christ. And so Paul calls on the mature Christians to forfeit their rights, to eat meat for the sake of the weaker Christian. Because proud knowledge puffs us up and makes us arrogant. But humble love builds up and encourages the body of Christ. Paul now in chapter 9 is taking this command that he has given to the Corinthians and he is showing how he has applied it to his own life. Further showing us how we should apply it to our lives. To show us how we should understand our rights and what we should do with our rights. Today we are going to cover the whole chapter and so I'll read the passage as we go. But before we dig in this very weighty, serious study of God's word and study of our hearts, let's pray again to ask God's assistance. Lord God, help us, Lord. Many of us are frustrated. Many of us are angry. Some of it righteous, some of it unrighteous. Teach us our rights, and how we should use them for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Paul models for us how we should understand our rights and what we should do with our rights. So first, Paul defends his rights. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1 through 3. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? 
If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Paul's apostleship was often called into question in the early churches because in order to be an apostle, you needed to have eyewitness of Jesus' resurrected body. You needed to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and you needed to be commissioned by Jesus himself. And those who were commissioned as apostles by Jesus himself were his special messengers to the world. His special special messengers that would lay the foundational teaching of the church, which is how we got the New Testament. These are the writings and the teachings of the commissioned apostles. But Paul's apostleship was questioned because Paul was not one of the original 12 disciples that walked with Jesus and was taught by Jesus and commissioned by Jesus before Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Paul became an apostle after that when he was on the road to Damascus to persecute the church and Jesus appears to Paul and then calls Paul to himself and then for three years teaches Paul the gospel. After which time Paul came to the original apostles And they affirm that he too was an apostle as well. And so Paul says here, listen, you of all people should know I'm apostle because of the fruit of God that was born in you through me. So Paul starts to defend his rights by defending his position as an apostle. He continues in verse 4 and 5, laying out the rights of an apostle and really a minister of the gospel. Verse 4, he says, Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Paul is simply saying that a minister of the Lord has the same rights as all other Christians. They don't have to be impoverished. They have a right to food and water. They have a right to marry a Christian woman. We would differ in our Catholic friends on this that mandates celibacy for all clergy because Paul says even Cephas, who is Peter, whom Catholics believe is the first pope, he was married. We love our Catholic friends, but we would disagree with them on this. Verse 6, he continues and says, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? In other words, Paul is asking if he and Barnabas, as ministers of the gospel, are the only ones who should not get compensated for the work that they do vocationally. Paul's basically saying, listen, it is right to pay ministers of the gospel for doing gospel ministry. Paul then gives several illustrations, several examples of how ministers of the gospel, just like everyone else, has a right to receive compensation for the work that they do. Verse 7, he says, who serves as a soldier at their own expense? Could you imagine the outcry in our country if we had people serving in our military that had to pay for their own tank, that had to pay for their own plane, that had to pay for their own guns? Could you imagine if we sent them off to war and then we never paid them a dime? Could you imagine the outrage they are in to that payment for their service. Paul continues, he says, who plants a vineyard without eating of any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without gathering some of the milk? Does a farmer need to go to a market to get apples if he grows apples? Does a farmer need to go to the market to get milk if he has mil- cows that produce milk? That would be ridiculous. He has a right to his apples. He has a right to the milk. Paul now turns to the Old Testament and the authority of God's word 
to continue to make this point. Verse 8 and 9, he says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is, is it for oxen that God is concerned? In other words, if God is concerned about the rights of an oxen, how much more one of his own children? a minister of the Lord God. If it is unjust to starve your oxen, how much more unjust is it to starve a servant of the Lord? They too need provision and food in their belly to do the work of the Lord. Verse 10 and 11. Paul says, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope. And the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? A minister does not sow wheat or grain, but rather spiritual things, the word of God and the gospel of Christ. And yet Paul says, while ministers sow invisible spiritual things among you. It is good and just and right for them to reap, to, to reap material provisions. Verse 12 says, If others share this right claim on you, do we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Verse 13, he says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple serving service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offering. The Old Testament commanded the people of God to bring their tithes and offering into the temple. And from those tithes and offering, those who worked in the temples, the priests and as well as all of the assistants were compensated. And then Paul finally gives a summary verse to clarify everything he's been saying. Verse 14, in the same way, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. You know, as I take a look at this passage, I don't think there is too much controversy in our congregation that pastors should be compensated for their work so that we can devote our days to studying the word of God, proclaiming the gospel, and shepherding the flock. And might I say, just as a personal point of privilege, I'm so thankful for how Jacob's Well Church generously provides for me and my family above and beyond our basic necessities, and so thank you for that. But I also want to challenge you that in order to faithfully provide for me and other pastoral staff and other staff here at Jacob's Well Church, it means we are dependent on you to be faithful to give. In the Old Testament, the people were to bring a tithe as an offering. That's one-tenth of their crops or their income so that the workers of the temple could be compensated. Jesus reaffirms this idea of tithing in the New Testament. He says in Luke eleven forty two, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. And then he says, these you ought to have done, that is, tithe from their spices, without neglecting the others, which is justice and love. You know, I'm thankful in this church that I don't know who gives what. I don't know, I really don't even want to know because I'm afraid it might affect the way I minister to people. But sometimes, for some reasons, people will tell me whether they tithe or not. 
And what I have found is that the difference between those who tithe and those who don't tithe has absolutely nothing to do with how much money they make. We have very wealthy people who tithe and some who don't. They tell me this. I don't know why they tell me this, but they do. We have very poor people who tithe and some who don't. You see, whether you tithe or not has nothing to do with how much money you make. It has everything to do with your heart. And so let me simply encourage you to obey God's command to tithe right now and watch how God will provide for you. Tithe so that God can provide for his ministry through you. And so Paul first defends his rights, as I kind of am as well, and the rights of those in vocational ministry to earn a living and income doing gospel ministry. But then Paul surrenders his rights. Look at verse 12 with me again. He says, If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endured anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. It's so funny, isn't it? After Paul so vehemently argues that he and Barnabas and other ministers have the right to receive compensation, Paul then reminds him, we have not made use of this right. When he ministered among them, he did not make the use of the right to be compensated. This was the practice of Paul in all missionary journeys, as it is for most missionaries today. Paul either lived off the financial support of other churches or Paul worked a second job as a tent maker or a combination of the two. And the reason Paul did this, as he said in verse 12, is he didn't want any obstacle to the gospel. This word obstacle is is used for literally roadblocks that would be put up to stop an invading army. And so he doesn't want to put up any roadblocks to people coming to know Jesus. If you remember from earlier in this series, we mentioned how in Corinth, orators and public speakers were like rock stars. Okay, They didn't have TV or internet or, or things like that. And so their entertainment was to go and to hear a really good speaker, much like today's motivational speakers. And the speakers would charge money to provide a living for themselves. And there's nothing wrong with that if they did it ethically. But Paul wanted to make sure The poor could hear the gospel. And Paul wanted to make sure the Corinthians didn't think he was preaching the gospel simply to make a dollar, like many other public speakers were. And so Paul and Barnabas surrendered their rights from the Corinthians to make an income preaching the gospel. Verse 15, Paul continues. And he says, but I have made no use of any of these rights of financial compensation, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So he doesn't want any money from them. He says, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. By, Paul, by boasting, Paul's not talking about a self-promotion, like, oh, look at me, look, look how I'm preaching the gospel for free. He's not exalting himself and stealing glory from God. But rather, when Paul talks about boasting, he's talking about rejoicing. And so Paul is rejoicing in his opportunity to preach the gospel to them free of charge. For as he said, the necessity to preach the gospel to them was laid upon him by God himself. And so Paul could not not preach the gospel to them, whether they gave him money or not. 
It's what Paul was called to do. You know, I preach the gospel to those who give financially, but also to those who don't. My service is not just for paying customers. It is for everyone who has ears to hear. And those who do give, give more, give me more of an opportunity to minister to those who don't give. Verse 17, Paul continues, For I do this of my own will. I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For although I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Why does Paul surrender his rights for financial compensation? Why does Paul surrender his right to an elite status as a Roman citizen in which he is free from the authority of all other peoples? It's so that Paul might win more souls to Jesus. So that he can get the gospel out unhindered. Paul's compensation for the Corinthians from the Corinthians for his preaching the gospel was simply the joy of preaching the gospel free of charge, removing any barriers for the poor or those who might question his motives so that others might know the joy of knowing Jesus. Does Paul have the right to receive financial compensation from the churches he ministers to? Absolutely. But Paul surrenders that right so others might hear the gospel more clearly. C.T. Studd was a legendary 19th century cricket player in England that toured the world and even won an illustrious championship in Australia. At the age of 25, C.T. gained control of a very large inheritance. He came from a family with many millions of dollars. And when he was called to go into the mission field, he felt compelled because of the people he was going to that it would be right for him to give up all of his money And so he gave all the money away except 150 pounds, which today would be about $300,000. And he did this for his wife in case something happened to him. His wife discovered that he kept some money behind. And she told him, give it away. And so they give it to William Booth of the Salvation Army. And he went to China penniless. C.T. Studd said this. He says, I cannot tell you what joy it gave me to bring the first soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. I tasted almost all the pleasures of this world, but the pleasure of bringing someone to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ was greater. Did the studs have the right to keep their fame as cricket players or as a cricket player? Did he? Absolutely. Did they have the right to keep their fortune? Certainly, but they surrendered that right so there would be no obstacle to the gospel when they went into overseas mission. What right might God be asking you to surrender so that others might hear the gospel through you, so that there's no obstacle for them hearing the good news of the gospel of Christ? You know, you have the right to keep 90% of your money. Since we're talking about tithing, God says, give me 10% or more aptly, you can keep 90%. It's all God's money. But anyways, you have the right to keep 90% of it. But what you can do is you can forsake some of that right. And you can support missionaries like the Apostle Paul, like C.T. Studd, like Kalen and Caitlin Spencer to remove the roadblocks of the gospel for the community 
the missionaries are going to. As Ron pointed out two weeks ago, maybe God is calling you to surrender your right to wear a mask or to not wear a mask so others can hear the gospel. Maybe God is calling you to surrender your right to drink alcohol or not drink alcohol in certain situations around certain people for the sake of the gospel. Maybe God is calling you to surrender your right to hang out with people just like you that give you energy so that you can hang out with people who drain you, who are heavy laden so that they might hear the good news of the gospel of Christ. Maybe God is calling you to invite that broken or scary person from your neighborhood over for dinner. Here's the point. We have rights. You have rights. But we must be ready and willing to surrender any of those rights and all of those rights if there are barriers to other people hearing the gospel. And so just to recap, Paul defends his rights. But then Paul surrenders his rights for the sake of the spread of the gospel. Finally, Paul leverages his rights. Verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Paul declaring of of being free, again, was most likely his reference to being a Roman citizen. This was a precious and elite status held by very few in the empire. And among many others, it meant that Paul, Paul could go wherever he wanted in the entire empire. Paul could have lived a life of luxury on the French Riviera because that was a part of the Roman Empire at the time. And yet with his elite status, instead of leveraging it for his own good, he leveraged it to win others to Christ, to be a servant to slaves instead of having slaves serve him. And why did he do this? End of verse 19 again, that I might win more of them, win them to Christ. Paul continues in verse 20, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. You see, when Paul went city to city to plant churches, the first place he would go is to the Jewish synagogue. And Paul would go in there and he would preach the good news of the gospel of Christ. And in order to to gain that platform, what Paul would do is he would take on the Jewish traditions of the Jews that he was going to visit with. You see, Jews were very distinct from the world and and what they and the clothing that they wore and the holidays that they celebrated and the food that they ate and didn't eat. And so Paul would worship with them on a Saturday, which was the Jewish Sabbath instead of a Sunday, which was the Christian Sabbath. And Paul was flexible and adaptable for the sake of winning some to Christ. Now, for sure, Paul did offend many of the Jews because he would not compromise on the gospel. But Paul sought not to offend them with his cultural distinctiveness or personal preferences. Paul acted the same way among Gentiles, the non-Jews. Verse 21, he says, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. This is not, this not only tells us that when Paul ministered to the Gentiles, he acted like a Gentile, but it also tells us that Paul limited his flexibility to the law of God and the law of Christ. Paul is not under the law as a means of salvation, but Paul is also not without the law as a governor for his life. And Paul would respect the norms of the Gentiles and the Jews when he was with them, as long as it did not cause him to sin against the law of God. 
Verse 22, he says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Even Paul, as a Roman citizen with this elite status, would go to the marginalized people of the community, those who others would write off, and he would descend into lower classes to preach the gospel. He continues and says, I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. You see, Paul's chief desire was not to force his culture or his political views on others. His chief desire was to win men and women to Christ. And for that reason, he was willing to surrender any of his rights so that, as Paul says, that I might share with them and its blessings. Paul knows there is nothing sweeter and more wonderful and more delightful in salvation And his chief desire is that he can share in that salvation with more and more people because the more, the merrier. Paul is flexible as far as the word of God allows him to be to win people for Jesus Christ. And he does this because his surpassing passion is that others would enjoy Christ with him. You know, Paul talks about winning people to Christ four times in these verses. Verse 19, he says, that I might win more of them. Verse 20, in order to win the Jews. Later in that verse, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21, that I might win those outside the law. Verse 22, that I might win the weak. And then he says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. You know, this seems like a silly illustration, but when I hear this passage I think about a time when I was in college, and uh, I lived in St. Louis. My college was University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri, which was in the center of the state about two hours away. And it was Christmas break, and we were in St. Louis, and the Big 12 championship football game was being played in St. Louis. And my campus minister, Pastor Chad Brewer, uh, got some tickets to the game, and so he took me to the game. And we got to the game and we sat down and we weren't really rooting for either team because we were diehard Mizzou Tiger fans. But when we got there and we sat down, we sat down next to a man who was rooting for K-State, a huge K-State fan. And so Chad started talking to him and he started sharing the gospel with him. And then the game started and I noticed during the game, Chad was was rooting for K-State. And I said, Chad, what are you doing? We are not K-State fans. We are Missouri fans. It felt like treason to me. And he turned to me and said, becoming all things to all people. He was right. Winning this man to Christ was far more important than trumpeting our allegiance to the Missouri Tigers football program. You know, when I was in seminary, we read a book called Chameleon Christianity. Chameleons, as you know, can adapt their colors to fit into any environment, but they still remain chameleons. This book was endorsed by by people like J.I. Packer and Ravi Zechariah, and what it focused on is how do we become all things to all people in all cultures for the sake of winning souls to Christ? Can I be honest with you? I think this is a weakness in our denomination. I love our denomination I don't want to be in any other denomination. It's a Jesus-loving, Bible-teaching denomination. But I think there is often an extra-biblical, cultural rigidity that keeps us from winning souls to Christ. What extra-biblical, cultural rigidity do you have? Do I have? That are obstacles, roadblocks to the gospel of Christ. You know, I love country music. 
I dislike rap music. I'll just be honest with you. But what would it look to embrace those who enjoy music differently, differently than me and surrendering my rights that I might win them to Christ? Brothers and sisters, what are you ultimately trying to win people to? Is it a political viewpoint, a certain candidate, a sports team, a diet program? You know, it's okay to promote these things and seek to win people these things. But do you do it with greater urgency than seeking to win people to Christ? Here's the thing. If your chief desire is to win people to Christ, then you will happily surrender your rights and leverage your rights to promote Christ. And so can I ask you, can you become all things to all people to win people to Christ? Or are you putting up roadblocks? Is your political party a roadblock to sharing the gospel with someone from an opposing political party? Do you get so worked up that they're not a Republican like you or a Democrat like you or a Libertarian like you? And you trumpet your political party so loud that it drowns out the sound of the gospel. Do you make your relationships about winning people to Jesus or winning them to something else? What about people who differ from you on the coronavirus, on vaccinations, on immigration reforms, on how to fix our economy. Again, we can discuss these things our friend, with our friends and neighbors, but they should be background noise to our desire to win people to Jesus Christ. Verse 24, Paul continues and he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Corinth was the location of the Isthmus Games, which was only second in popularity to the Olympic Games. And so Paul was taking something that they were very familiar with and illustrating a point that winning people to Christ is hard work. That ministry takes discipline. That evangelism takes sacrifice and intentionality. No, None of us fall backwards into winning people to Christ. It's something that we have to work hard for, be disciplined with, and do intentionally and with sacrifice. But it is worth the prize, Paul says. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. He has in mind those, 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 those wreaths that go on the head that have... Um, that have uh, leaves attached to it that perish, right? He says, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. He's not wasting his energy, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You know, the Olympics are supposed to be going on this year, and you'll always see reports of the great extent people go through to train for the Olympics, about how basically they leave their family for months at a time to go and to train to win that gold medal and the accolades of the people around the world. But what Paul is saying, listen, that compares nothing to the accolades and the glory of heaven. Many of us train for, for the Cellcom or for the Bellin race. We, we eat certain foods and don't eat other foods. And then we go through grueling workouts. We know it is hard work and we have to be intentional about it. But what if we trained our souls to that same degree that we trained our bodies? What if you trained your soul with discipline, with consistency, with sacrifice. We must train so that we might win others to Christ. You know, Pastor Jonathan asked me 
you know, are you going to lead the journey evangelism as a summer study this year if we do summer studies? And I said, yeah, I probably will because I become lackadaisical about sharing the gospel. It happens to me. Does it happen to you? You see, the reason I focus on evangelism on sabbaticals is not because I'm overly passionate about winning people to Jesus, but because I'm underly passionate about winning people to Jesus. Let us train together and work hard and leverage our rights to win people to Christ, that we may share with them in the blessings of salvation now and forevermore. Let me end with this. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Pay It Forward. Uh, If not, let me spoil it for you. (laughs) In the movie, some kids are given an assignment by their teacher to think of something that will change the world, and then they have to put it into action. And so one boy named Trevor comes up with the concept of paying it forward. In the movie, this boy decides to do something really generous for three other people, something these other people cannot do for themselves. And then once he has done those things, they're not supposed to repay the love to him. They're supposed to pay it forward to other people, to do something for other people that they cannot do for themselves. And then those three people are to do it for three other people and so on and so forth, and it branches out. And so the first person Trevor helps is a homeless man who starts to live in his garage. The second person is his own mother, whom he sets up with his teacher to get her into a relationship. And then the third is a friend from school, appropriately named Adam. Trevor sees Adam being bullied by three gang members. In an attempt to pay it forward, he rides his bike into the bullies and starts to fight them. But then a bully pulls out a switchblade and stabs Trevor in the stomach. Trevor is rushed to the hospital, and despite the doctor's best efforts, he dies. Christians, 1 Corinthians 9 has issued us many challenges to not only defend our rights, but also to surrender our rights and to leverage our rights to win people to Christ. And while you might feel like God is asking too much from you, Really, God is just asking you to pay it forward. For it is nothing less than what God himself has done for you. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, Jesus was God in the flesh. He had the right for the entire world, the entire heavens, to bow down and to worship him day and night, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He had that right. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't cling on to his divinity and his right for people to worship him. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a slave for you and for me, being born in the likeness of men. He was a chameleon. He became like a human. And if that was not enough, he humbled himself to the point of death. Verse 8 of that chapter in Philippians 2 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, the most shameful death known to man at that time. Jesus laid down his heavenly right to be worshipped by the angels of heaven, to come to earth, to lay down his life 
for you and for me to surrender his rights, even to the point of death by dying on the cross. Jesus did this to save you and to win you to himself so that we could enjoy the glory of heaven with him forever and for always. Why should we surrender our God-given rights to win souls to Christ? Why should we discipline ourselves and train our souls so that others might be saved? Because that's exactly what God has done for you and his son, Jesus Christ. And now he is calling you to pay it forward and do it for others. C.T. Studd put it this way. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess to you that we do cling to our rights more than we should. Help us, Lord, to surrender our rights for the freedom to proclaim the good news of Christ to others, to win others to salvation, Lord. Give us the courage and the wisdom and the humility to live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here, God's benediction from Hebrews chapter 13. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. We'll see you next week.